This week on the Backtable Podcast. High volume grade group one. I don't think for the most part, those people should be surveyed. Lauren Cooley and Bill Catalano published a very nice paper on over 5,400 people in surveillance. And they showed that increasing core count with cancer, grade group one core count with cancer was associated with increased probability of need for treatment and adverse pathology. So I would argue to you, if you're going to follow somebody who has eight cores with grade group one disease, which core are you going to set up for genomic testing? Like, I mean, for me, you don't know there's some variability in that. If you have bilateral disease, because it's probably going to be bilateral, if you have six or eight cores, which side are you testing? How do you decide which sample to send? Do you even know which sample is being sent? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodia as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Ted Schaefer from Northwestern University. Welcome to the show, Ted. How's it going today? Great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a privilege. It's an honor. You know, you've been doing this for a few years now, and I think your work kind of speaks for you. You trained at a mecca of prostate cancer innovation and research at, at Hopkins, and currently, I believe, chair of the NCCN guidelines panel. So I uh, really appreciate you carving out some time and looking forward to picking your brain on precision medicine and prostate cancer. I thought I would maybe just ask you to reflect on your early career, both as a trainee, as an early assistant professor, on how prostate cancer was managed and what were the key things that you were considering when you were taking care of patients with prostate cancer? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, for me in my personal life, I learned a lot about the management of prostate cancer from personal life experience. So my grandfather was diagnosed with prostate cancer T1A on a TERP that progressed and led to his eventual demise. And so although I was young at the time and didn't really understand what was transpiring, with due time, I was able to kind of rebuild his treatment plan. So I have two perspectives. One is very old historical treatment for prostate cancer, but the type of prostate cancer, frankly, that we still think a lot about, which is kind of low-grade, low-volume disease and how you properly manage that. And then, yes, it's true, you know, I, I had a great experience. So based on my personal life experience of my grandfather dying from prostate cancer, I became interested in studying the disease while I was doing my PhD at the NIH. And although my PhD had nothing to do with prostate cancer, it was a time for me to reflect on what I wanted to do with my life. At that time, when I was at the NIH, the human genome was being sequenced. I shared space actually with Francis Collins. He was the head of the Genome Institute and my lab was big and we overflowed to his space. So I got to share lab space with him and Jeff Trent was working on transcriptomics and chips. And it was really just amazing time in what we now know as this field of kind of precision medicine and, and understanding each individual person's genome. And that plus my personal family, my personal life experience with prostate cancer kind of all came together during that PhD training. And so when I returned to medical school at University of Chicago, I really had a mission and I had a passion for what I wanted to do. And so at the time I was training Johns Hopkins, I'm biased because I, I went there, but really was the best place to train for urology. We had 
these amazing thought leaders in prostate cancer. And, you know, it was the right place for me and it was the right fit. So I went there and I learned a lot about prostate cancer. At that time, it was, you know, Dr. Patrick Walsh, Dr. Ballantyne Carter, Alan Parton, Yasek Moslin. These are really just technically outstanding surgeons and people who really thought about the disease a lot at the time. And I think the perspective that they carried with them, at least when I was training, which was between 01 and 07, was that when you pick up a prostate cancer, you should treat that prostate cancer. And that was based on historical data. When we picked up prostate cancers in the 80s and 90s, 40% of the time it was metastatic. So if we developed a tool to pick up prostate cancers while they were early -er in their kind of evolution, I think at that time the linear thought was that, well, we should treat it. And if we do early intervention, we can prevent the subsequent diagnosis of metastatic disease. And that general thesis proved to be true. But over the last several decades, we've refined kind of precisely, you know, who we think should be treated and who maybe doesn't need treatment. But certainly that was the kind of general thesis. But what was really exciting about being at Johns Hopkins was just the kind of idea of discovery. So, you know, the idea of putting forth a hypothesis, testing it and learning about whatever it was that you were interested in. I chose Hopkins to train because there were so many thoughtful minds that were focused on prostate cancer, and that was my personal passion. And then, you know, the other sidebar but spectacular part of my training at Johns Hopkins was the environment that I trained with, specifically with the residents. So in my era of training at Johns Hopkins, the residents one year ahead of me were Moa Loff, who's the chair at Hopkins now, and Craig Rogers, who's a chair at Henry Ford in Detroit. My co-residence, Chris Warlick, he's a chair at University of Minnesota. And the year one year below me was Matthew Nielsen. He's a chair at UNC. And Dan Makaroff, who's the chair of the VA in Manhattan. So it was a pretty spectacular group of people to work with. And so those individuals, those guys, plus the people who really were the folks mentoring us, really made for just a spectacular learning environment and an environment of kind of discovery. And so that was really what kind of kept me alive and excited during my training. And yes, who we did surgery on was variable and in many ways was more historical. We did surgery on people who had lower volume, lower grade prostate cancers, and rarely operated on men with higher grade disease, aggressive disease. Those individuals are often kind of recommended to have radiation and Yes, that was within the spectrum of having Valentine Carter on faculty. Valentine Carter started the first, you know, large U.S.-based active surveillance cohort and started in the same year that the active surveillance cohort was started by uh, Dr. Klotz in, in Toronto. So those two kind of AS cohorts were started and were being deployed, you know, while I was in Baltimore. So it was really fun to learn and study about those patients. So it's a long-winded answer for saying a lot of different things. One, how I came to want to and have an interest in prostate cancer. Two, the environment I chose to pursue that initial training. And we can certainly talk more about who we operated on or managed at that time. But I think it was a little different and we were more aggressive about intervention for individuals with lower grade earlier stage disease, in large part because of the history of men predating that, which is that they presented with more aggressive, kind of more serious stuff. 
I absolutely appreciate that perspective. And thank you for sharing the personal story about your grandfather. And I'm always very reluctant to reflect back and let's say be overly judgmental about the way things were done once upon a time. One of my areas of interest is testicular cancer. And, you know, prior to the advent of CT scans and effective chemotherapy, we were talking about extensive radical surgery for everybody because that's what was required to cure patients. And then over time, as we learn about the disease and the side effects, the quality of life implications, et cetera, things evolved. And I think there's a lot of parallels actually between, um, for instance, cystic cancer and prostate cancer, as we've learned more about the natural history and in the context of not knowing what we know now. You know, not to oversimplify, for me as a resident, I finished in 2014 and I did my fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Early days were absolutely localized prostate cancer. You treat it, you know, very broadly and metastatic prostate cancer, including lymph node positive cancer, even potentially lymph node positive cancer identified at the time of surgery, you didn't treat. MRIs kind of came through as I was a trainee. It wasn't a foregone conclusion that patients had imaging beyond a bone scan or maybe a CT scan for even high-risk disease. So certainly over the course of my training, which is not old, not super young, there's there's been plenty of evolution. And you kind of touched on precision medicine, of course, within prostate cancer, but even screening for prostate cancer. Maybe I'd ask you to just share a couple of words on how your thinking on PSA screening has evolved, ancillary testing, secondary screening, things along those lines. Yeah, I think those are great questions, and I think it's good to kind of set the stage. So a lot of people throw around the term precision medicine. The NIH has defined it. So the NIH defines it as new treatments or prevention methods based on understanding an individual's genes, environment, and lifestyle. So it's good to reflect on that because I feel good about our specialty in general, that in general, we've been kind of deploying principles of precision medicine, at least in my experience with my training and the partners I have here at Northwestern uh, for a long time. So I feel positive about that. And obviously those new treatments and preventive methods change over time as we just reflect. So that's kind of how I think about precision medicine and, and you're right. So precision medicine can be deployed at various stages in someone's life, in various stages in someone's, you know, cancer journey. And that may be on primary prevention, although the data on prevention for prostate cancer in terms of lifestyle is limited and at this point does not suggest that major lifestyle changes, at least in, you know, US men is really that impactful. But I do like the idea of understanding people's baseline genomic risk. And those are basically kind of consist of two things. One is kind of like a polygenetic risk score or polygenetic risk. Those are based off of single nucleotide polymorphisms that all individuals can be queried for. And then there are more selective specific genes that are associated with increased risk for developing prostate cancer and lethal prostate. So the SNP work has been done by many, many folks. Actually, I would say that the kind of leaders in the single nucleotide polymorphism risk groups is really from Chris Heyman, who is at USC, just has a really beautiful paper published in Nature Genetics, actually in December of 2023. So I like the idea of assessing polygenetic risk. Polygenetic risk is really good in kind of outlining and mapping out somebody's screening intervals. 
So, you know, there's lots of interest these days in kind of this idea of precision screening for different diseases. And so I think one good way to do that is send somebody who has an interest in early detection, maybe has a family history or something, doing polygenetic risk is actually a very powerful tool to understand relative to the population, what's the likelihood or probability that they would be diagnosed with prostate cancer in their lifetime. Doesn't mean they'll be diagnosed next year or in two years, but lifetime. And that can give you a good framework for your baseline discussion with the patient. Hey, do you have a low polygenetic risk? If so, you know, your chances over your lifetime are not that high. Doesn't mean you don't have to follow things, but it means maybe you could follow them less intensely at different intervals. Conversely, if someone has a high polygenetic risk score, their chances for being diagnosed with prostate cancer may be quite high. In fact, higher than classic single gene genetic alterations like in BRCA, you know, so it's a very powerful kind of way to kind of map that out. And then as I alluded to, you can look for specific alterations in genes in a single or both alleles in BRCA1, BRCA2, various components of the kind of DNA repair pathway that are associated with Lynch syndrome. And those are, I think, much more rare than looking at polygenetic risk. But in individuals where you take a history and, and there's things that may point to that with BRCA, which is what I focus on most, it's really ancestry, Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry more specifically, and then family history of early onset prostate, breast, ovarian, or pancreatic. So I'll do a family history. I'll talk to the patient. And you could consider doing one of those screening for individuals with those mutations if they have those family histories. You could, if you have a family history of just prostate, you could consider polygenetic risk scores to further stratify one subsequent lifetime probability of developing prostate cancer. And then you could thoughtfully develop a general framework for a screening strategy for somebody. But I must say that although I like those tools, they haven't been necessarily proven in any kind of prospective trial-based format that says doing a baseline PSA at 40 or 45 plus minus genomic risk or plus minus you know BRCA really changes the overall outcome. But I think if you're being trying to be individualized, I think it's and someone's engaged in that process, those are very helpful tools to think about deploying in terms of a screening strategy. Not so much to intensify screening but in some ways potentially to de-intensify screening in individuals as they age and age out. So that's kind of how I think about precision assessment with screening, but it, it doesn't necessarily change the screening technique. So I like PSA-based blood markers to screen. So remember genomic risk and let's just say allelic alterations in BRCA1, BRCA2, et cetera, those are really assessing risk. And then how do you screen for individuals? Um, I like to use PSA-based blood tests. Oftentimes for most urologists, they're getting referred patients because they have an elevation in their PSA. I always think it's important to emphasize for the trainees that I work with, they're spectacular, but I always like to emphasize like, you know, there's not an epidemic of elevated PSAs in the world, right? So if you look at contemporary work, it's probably less than 10% of the population has a PSA over three. That's just like, let's just call it men over 50. So it's not an epidemic of elevated PSAs. If you go to a urology clinic, you may think so, but that's because we get referred those people. 
So big picture, you know, when people ask me about, you know, this kind of stuff outside of the clinic, I'll tell them, well, good news is that most people don't have an elevated, but certainly if you do, if you refer to me, you have an elevated PSA. I, I like PSA based testing. I prefer PHI. Bill Catalano, who's one of my partners, really helped develop that. I think it's a great test. There are other ones I like. The other one you could use is for K-score. But I think for us in our particular program, PHI gets reported out in about an hour. So we like that it's there in real time. But there are other tools. And those are the ones I typically rely on. Other people think about using urine-based biomarkers. They are reasonable, but I like the idea that PSA-based screening is relatively cost-effective. If you do not have access to PHI, you can just use percent-free PSA. So Scott Egner, who's a, a good friend, I think he's been on this show, and he wrote a nice paper that shows that percent-free is pretty darn good too. PHI is better, but percent-free is good. So if you don't have access, you can certainly do precise screening in individuals with PSA and percent-free. You can augment that with PHI. And that's kind of how I typically enter the discussion with patients because they come to me with an elevated PSA. Now, as I mentioned, if there are younger men who have a family history of prostate cancer who want me to follow them, we'll start with the genomic risk, potentially considered genomic testing for germline alterations in BRCA, et cetera. And then we still got to revert back to this idea that you do screening with PSA-based biomarkers. If the PSA is very low, then I don't deploy them because they're not calibrated below 2 to 2.5. And then you just follow people and you look for changes over time. No, I, I appreciate that. And I've definitely touched on, you know, practical implementation, taking a thorough family history of not just prostate cancer, but prostate cancer associated malignancies. I like the idea of younger patients who may not really have any indication for screening to get the SNPs or um, even consider germline testing. Quick practical question for you. Are you ordering germline testing yourself or is that a referral to medical genetics? I typically would order it myself. So if you look at... Uh, there's guidelines that are set out in the kind of various societies for genetic tests, genetic counselors, and they talk about the process, you know, because at some point you have to get consent to do germline testing. And the process of delineating an individual person's risk for having a particular alteration and then consenting them to the actual blood-based testing, I think most urologists can do that. And I'm a pretty pragmatic guy, so I think I can identify when I talk to people in clinic, those individuals who need testing, we can actually do it through a regular walk-in lab. Actually, they can go to an, a regular laboratory facility and get that testing done. It is routed to me and our genetic counselor. She reviews everything, and then she'll tell me if there's an issue. So we have a hybrid that works out great. We have a genetic counselor, and she sits in our urology clinic with us. Now, our urology clinic is us, her other supportive oncologists, social workers, and then all the medical oncology team. So we're pretty well integrated from a urologic oncology perspective. And so she sits between us and the, where the medocs sit. And so they will often rely on her to do all the work. But since the volume of patients I take care of is much higher, I often will do the initial screening. If I feel like there's a need or the patient's interested, we'll then order the test and it's routed to her. Yeah, we're quite similar that way. And that was an evolution when I moved here from my fellowship at Memorial in my first years as an attending at UT Southwestern. And it was largely, you know, in 2018, the guidelines, I think, were updated, expanding the criteria even for high-risk localized. So that was a part of it. And then we actually have a clinical trial in IIT of neoadjuvant PARP inhibitors for patients with high-risk localized prostate cancer and BRCA mutations. So clearly to screen that 5% that are going to fall, you know, those 
narrow, narrow 5%. You've got to screen everybody. And just from a logistics, maybe disease management, um, bandwidth perspective, it's not super feasible that every T3, grade group four or five prostate cancer, see a medical geneticist and, and so on and so forth. Are you finding it about 5% for those high-risk individuals? Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's a lot of patients to screen, as you can imagine, and not to totally get off topic, but every new prostate cancer patient, every biopsy is screened for entry criteria, inclusion criteria. And then we contact them even before their post-biopsy visit to get their staging, get their germline testing. And of course, you know, talk to them about what that means. And and we are finding 5%. The trial has been open since October and we've screened and enrolled one patient. It's a six institution IIT, but it's exciting. And I, I mean, I think it, you know, really is, goes hand in hand with this idea of precision medicine. A great point. And I, I think part of it is, you know, when do you deploy a new treatment or new methodology? And, and so, yes, that, that's a perfect example of that idea of you have a new treatment. And the question would be, when is the best time to deploy it? Obviously, you're doing it for research and discovery purposes. And, you know, I thought a lot about it. I mean, my fa- my grandfather died of lethal prostate cancer. And, and I, I think about it because there's other individuals in my family with prostate cancer. But that's a good example of like, you know, well, if the trial, let's just say it's positive, is it worth it to necessarily screen you know, everybody who has high risk localized for a BRCA2 deficiency, that's really what you're looking for, right? With the idea that, you know, would that early intervention change the ultimate disease course for that patient? You know, we don't know. And, and it certainly would be worth it to study that because it's not, a, it's a drug that comes with some side effects. And so again, that's the fun part or the kind of intellectual part about being precise, right? Is when do you, or when should you be precise? not just how do you be precise, right? Absolutely. And I, and I loved you kind of bringing up the definition put forth by, by the NCCN because precision medicine is such a, such a grab bag. Well, maybe so patients are diagnosed and maybe we can just kind of walk through this grade group one, grade group five, talk about opportunities for, for personalization. And maybe we just kick off with grade group one, start out with perhaps an assumption that most grade group ones are going to be observed, active surveillance. Is that generally your your practice also, Ted? Yeah. I mean, I would say that, look, every single case, in my opinion, is I try to deploy precision medicine. And some of it is not using any advanced tools. It's just putting on your thinking cap. You know, so age, comorbidities, number of biopsy cores with cancer, what was their kind of pre-biopsy diagnostic portfolio, what did it look like, et cetera. We spend a lot of money in the U.S. on these individuals before we even have a diagnosis of cancer. I'm, I'm okay with that, you know, because I think the idea that you can reduce the total number of biopsies that you need. But in general... So you're talking about MRIs, like everybody's getting an MRI. If you haven't biopsied them yet, or if they haven't had an MRI with the biopsy, you're getting one. Yeah, it's a huge burden in terms of cost for the health system, but I'm frankly okay with that. Okay. So for me... I don't think all Gleason 6 cancers are the same because I think that there is a correlation between the volume of the disease picked up and the subsequent future outcomes. And that was always my hypothesis. And so I actually tested that hypothesis with Jim Hu. We looked at the transcriptomic profiles of people and looked at volume of course by biopsy count and aggressiveness by genomic score. We used a decipher score. And we found that there was a correlation between the number of cores with cancer and the increasing 
genomic aggressiveness score with one exception that was for people who had grade group one disease. So my hypothesis was not supported by the, the investigation. So as a scientist, I'm okay with admitting that I was wrong. I'm glad I had a hypothesis and tested it. So in general, I would say most people who are diagnosed with prostate cancer have one to four cores with Gleason 6. That's a general presentation. And for those people in general, I think surveillance is a very good starting point. Fundamentally, I think about it like everybody's a candidate for surveillance and can I exclude them from surveillance based on additional confounding factors. PSA density is a very potent predictor for upgrading, upstaging, adverse pathology, bad outcomes with, with surveillance. So I use PSA density as one of my precision medicine tools. It's a pretty cost-effective tool because um, you can find volume out by MRI or by ultrasound. I think about that significantly. So I look at that. Now there are outliers. There are individuals who present with 10 or 12 cores of Gleason 6 disease. In my opinion, those people are not candidates for surveillance. That is, a, I think, a different disease state than somebody with one to four cores with cancer. But in general, upfront, people with grade group one disease, candidate for surveillance. Can I prove that candidacy right or disprove their candidacy with further testing? I can. For me, it's really, did they have an MRI before their biopsy? If they didn't, they need an MRI after. You're looking for the tumor that was missed on a RADS something, a rad score. And that's really what I use. And I calculate PSA density from that. I don't use routinely any other testing to establish candidacy for surveillance because I think there's limited added value for the other tools. Dan Lin looked in the Canary Pass cohort, did a very nice study looking at genomic risk. And they used one of the three commercially available genomic tests. It was by Genomic Health. It was like the GPS prostate test. And they looked and they said, well, can we, if we do genomics on these people in Canary Pass, again, I think Canary Pass is 85% grade group one or maybe higher. You know, it's an enriched population for grade group one disease. Can we predict future upgrading with genomic testing? It was a well done study published in JCO several years ago. The answer was no. Could PSA density predict upgrading in, in, in future biopsy? Yes. So I use PSA density. And I don't necessarily tell patients based on their PSA density or based on the number of cores of cancer that they have that they can or they cannot do surveillance, but it's all about relative risk of progression. And I think about it with patients kind of bundled into two bins. There's the young patient who's diagnosed with prostate cancer, and then there's the older patient. And for the older patient, I'm really balancing what's the chance that this cancer will progress and become a threat to their life. And for the younger patient, I kind of think about it differently. Like what's the chance that the cancer progresses and they need definitive therapy that, you know, may need to be, you know, multimodal. So like, did you miss the window of opportunity to cure that young patient that you're monitoring based on they had, if they had surgery that they developed a positive margin that had T3 disease, or if they had radiation, maybe they went into kind of needing radiation plus kind of hormones. So for the young patient, I'm thinking, what's the probability that they can be in surveillance in three to five years with still favorable risk disease, not needing an intervention, or if they needed an intervention, they would still be curable. And for the older patient, it's a different kind of answer to the question, which is how long do I think I can survey this person before they develop, you know, life-threatening, life-shortening disease. And so that's how I think about grade group one or even limited grade group two disease within the kind of context of the individual patient, 
age, life expectancy, and then also what's the patient's expectations for their management. So some people are may say, you know, they have, let's just say, I don't know, six cores with great group one disease and they want to go one or two years. Well, that's probably reasonable for them to go one or two, if they're 50, one or two years without needing something. But what's the five-year probability that that person will need an intervention? Very high. And as long as you're honest with that person about that relative risk, I think it's reasonable to think about it. Conversely, that person with the same number of cores who's 79 years old, who probably never needed the biopsy to begin with, or maybe didn't, or had a change in their overall health, I'd be thinking, okay, you know, they can get through their full lifespan with a good health span as well. Yeah, I really appreciate that, Ted. And, you know, as I've kind of continued to evolve, I actually think that when it comes to surveillance and grade group one disease, there's also a pretty substantial opportunity to personalize even as it comes to surveillance. And I'll just, you know, throw out my general kind of thoughts on surveillance. So young patients, grade group one disease, we're a little bit nervous and we'll just assume nothing overly nefarious on the MRI, the density, family history. Those are patients actually where I'm a little bit more inclined to consider getting some type of genomic classifier, not to necessarily trigger treatment, but to trigger the interval for a confirmatory biopsy, repeat MRI, so forth. Same for the grade group, high volume grade group one disease in healthier patients. Those are patients where I may, cons- and again, with nothing overly offensive on their MRI family history, I'll consider a genomic classifier. And maybe that's a case where I would possibly be a little bit more inclined to treat based on a you know histopath grade group one disease only. And then a strong family history with or without BRCA mutations, grade group one disease, a genomic classifier to, to help guide the patient on if and when treatment may be required. So these are three very specific scenarios. The favorable density, relatively low volume, moderately comorbid patient. I don't necessarily feel like any additional information that could quote unquote muddy the waters and and cause consternation is going to be useful to the patient or to me. But I'll just pause there to see if you have any comments on some very broad strokes, thoughts on what I just shared. I don't use genomics for grade group one disease. How about that for broad? Yeah, no, I think it's so high volume grade group one disease, typically in your hand is high volume grade group one. I don't think for the most part, those people should be surveyed. Lauren Cooley and Bill Catalano published a very nice paper on over 5,400 people in surveillance. And they showed that increasing core count with cancer, grade group one core count with cancer was associated with increased probability of need for treatment and adverse pathology. So I would argue to you, if you're going to follow somebody who has eight cores with grade group one disease, which core are you going to set up for genomic testing? Like, I mean, for me, you don't know there's some variability in that. If you have bilateral disease, because it's probably going to be bilateral, if you have six or eight cores, which side are you testing? How do you decide which sample to send? Do you even know which sample is being sent? So for me, those are people that generally I don't recommend surveying for. Now, the good news is that there's, it's a pretty limited percentage of individuals who have that much grade group one only disease. Well, we looked at this with the NCCN and, and I asked actually asked Todd Morgan to kind of look at the music cohort just so we had some perspective as to who's presenting with what. And in general, people present with four cores or less, and there were very few cases of high volume, let's say more than six cores with Gleason 6. When we look at our database, we see the same thing. I think we have around 
11% of people, it's one to two cores of Gleason 6 in a contemporary MRI-guided biopsy series at Northwestern. Ashley Ross did a lot of this work with his database. But we see people usually with three to four or three to five cores uh, of six. And so, but in general, just to be, it's not really being provocative. I, I don't find that genomic testing is going to alter a lot of what I do. It's another risk assessment tool. And it just depends on how many risk assessment tools you want to do or deploy. So for me, individuals with grade group one disease, generally speaking, they're candidates for surveillance. I risk stratify with PSA density and that's what I use. I don't think that genomics adds value to that equation. I think it's going to take a lot, uh, particularly for people who have one to two cores with Gleason 6 cancer, or grade group one cancer. I really strongly advocate against genomic testing because I think it can muddy the waters, particularly with the clean MRI and a good density. For people who have very high cores, core counts of Gleason, a grade group one disease, I don't deploy genomic testing because I personally believe that on average, those people need treatment. They are not good candidates for surveillance. And then there's the people in the middle. And I think in general, the data is pretty good that most people present with one to four cores of grade group one when they have their biopsies back. And those individuals are generally, you know, pretty good candidates for surveillance. And so I usually base my decision-making off of PSA density, MRI findings, and you know what the biopsy actually showed, core length or count, et cetera. So that's how I think about it. I usually only deploy genomic testing for people who have limited involvement, grade group two prostate cancer. So that would be one or maybe two cores of grade group two disease with, you know, let's just say less than 50% of the core and 5% pattern for something like that, where they have low volume disease, and that low volume disease um, has a smidge of gray group Gleason pattern four disease in it. For those individuals, I typically, as a practice, will deploy genomic testing, and I do that because on a, because on average, about two thirds to seventy percent of those individuals will come back with low genomic risk, which kind of makes sense. I mean, if you start looking at percent pattern four and their five percent pattern four then, you know, probably there's not a lot of aggressive or bad disease in those individuals. It's a good way to reinforce that concept. That's how I think about or utilize genomic testing. So in my everyday practice, I do it on a, in a pretty focused fashion. Higher volume, grade group two or any grade group three or higher, I generally don't deploy genomic testing unless they're undergoing a clinical trial. There are a couple nice clinical trials in the radiation space for grade group three or higher disease. And so we would sometimes order it only under the umbrella of the clinical trial. So I'm pretty, I try to be precise about the deployment of precision medicine tools if I want to play the words right. And I do that because I just, I'm thoughtful about the information I get back in those tests and how I'm going to utilize that information in giving advice to the patient. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. And I think it's important to separate a precision medicine tool from a costly or not costly molecular profiling tool. Not only they're one and the same, I mean, cribriform architecture, introductory histology, African-American ancestry, strong family history, these are all kind of playing into the gestalt of... Well, yeah, but I mean, just to clarify for the audience, so yes, cribriform pattern for disease is bad. I mean, there's very good evidence on that. So I never would 
deploy genomic testing you know, in that situation because I'm not going to give the patient advice about delaying intervention. I'm going to tell them, I think you need treatment. So like, again, I'm just thoughtful about how I deploy a genomic test. It's really a transcriptomic test. I gave this grant a couple months ago as a VP and somebody was harassing me about that. It's actually transcriptomic analysis of the tumor. It's not full transcriptome. It's not RNA-seq, but it's a transcriptomic test in terms of the decipher score. The other tests utilizing PCR to amplify specific pieces of RNA in the tumor. So it's not even genomic or transcriptomic. It's just PCR-based. But the idea is that you're looking at the expression of different genes within the tumor. And I, I'm just thoughtful about who I utilize it for because I'm pretty pragmatic about what I'm telling the patient or giving them advice. So if I may, again, assuming kind of a healthy, typical prostate cancer patient, it almost sounds for like grade group two, it's going to be a narrower sliver of patients with limited core involvement, limited pattern four, and then no more adverse features like introductal, like low density, obviously a unfavorable MRI. Family history, is that playing into it or African-American ancestry? No, it's not family history. Generally, when someone's diagnosed, their ancestry doesn't matter as much to me personally. But remember, we're talking about precision medicine and, you know, the ISUP, International Society of Urologic Pathology, came out with a statement in 2013 where they really redefined how biopsies should be read, where they tell you percent pattern four and they tell you or declare cribriform pattern, you know, presence or not. Those are incredibly precise pieces of information that, you know, can be as powerful or even maybe more powerful than genomic classifiers. So again, just I personally, when I see somebody who has an outside biopsy, I can do the forensics on the biopsy. Is that pathology report really precise? Is it telling me millimeters of cancer, percent pattern four? Contiguous, discontiguous. I mean, well, I mean, we see lots of people who come to see me because they have, um, let's just say they have Gleason four plus three equals seven and they are told they need treatment. And at face value for the in-service or your board exam, maybe that would be true. But if you do the forensics on it and it's two millimeters of cancer and it's 55% pattern four, we're talking about a millimeter of pattern four disease. Frankly, that guy needs more testing before I would recommend anything for him, like repeat evaluation of the biopsy, probably a repeat biopsy before I did anything. Because if the guy has one millimeter of Gleason pattern four disease, I'm, I'm frankly not that worried about it, even though on paper it sounds terrible, right? So that's where, you know, I think it's just important to put your thinking cap on and really, really critically evaluate all the tools and all the information that you have at hand before you just go and off and order a, a genomic test. Because once you've done all those things and you satisfied your individual criteria, then if you still have some unknown questions or you have an unknown you know, variable, then I think you could deploy that, you know, across the board. But I think it's pretty rare for most cases where you need to do that. Yeah, I appreciate that. So I, I think that the the radiation oncologists have been quite forward thinking and in incorporating these things like NRG009 and NRG0102 either intensify or de-intensify treatment for patients with favorable risk prostate cancer, high risk prostate cancer, respectively. I mean, yes, they've been super thoughtful about it. 
however, I, I mean, in the umbrella of those trials. But now, because those trials are open, I see radiation oncologists saying, hey, we can order genomic tests with the cipher. If the cipher is low, then they don't need any hormones. Well, no, we don't know that. That's what the trials are for. So yes, the radons are, and always have been, you know, leading the way in terms of doing trials within the localized prostate cancer space. And I give tremendous props to the NRG and their team for really doing that. They've been very good at kind of, you know, organizing their group of radiation oncologists to ask these questions and then find the answers. We've lagged behind as urologists in the setting of clinical trials. And so I'll use that as a plug to highlight my three prospective clinical trials, because I think it's always good if you have a hypothesis to test it. So we've just completed one of our three trials that is looking at transrectal versus transperineal prostate biopsy. We did it across 10 centers, going to be published in European Urology soon, but we have one in, in surveillance. And then we have a prospective clinical trial on different types of surgical technique and outcomes for men. So just because the radiation oncologists have led the way in the number, in the breadth, and the, the really kind of critical questions they're asking in terms of cancer treatment and outcomes, we as urologists shouldn't just feel like, well, we're behind and we shouldn't do it. So we had a question about whether or not Retzia sparing, you know, was really better. And so we wrote a trial and the NCI funded it. And it's a multi-center prospective trial to evaluate that. We had questions about four years ago about prostate biopsy, you know, which one was better. So we prospectively, you know, tested it. And so like proud of our, our teams for doing that because it just is a good point to make for this particular conversation about precision medicine. So we don't just have to accept others' definitions and we don't just have to accept, you know, different tools. We should test those tools and determine if they're effective. Yeah, I love that. And I was literally just about to ask you, when you're kind of substratifying risk, maybe we can move into unfavorable intermediate and high risk. If you do substratify risk, how does that if it does impact your surgical approach, assuming they're going for surgery. How does genomic testing affect that? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you for me, barring anything completely unexpected, like an ultra high risk genomic risk classifier and a three plus four equals seven, otherwise typical, I might do like a more extended lymphadenectomy than I otherwise would. The general roadmap that I'm following is going to be dictated on the pathology and the MRI, for instance. So largely for me, any type of additional tools don't impact my surgical plan is a... Yeah. Trial. I mean, in general, when I have a patient who has unfavorable intermediate risk or higher disease, and let's just say they're healthy with a good life expectancy, I think about treatment modalities that can save that patient from exposure to ADT treatment. That's how I think about surgery is, you know, well, you know, A, it's no worse than radiation, but B, if I can save that patient from six to 24 months of hormonal suppression, which have profound, profound impacts on their quality of life overall. I think that's where surgery has a strong advantage. I don't utilize genomic testing in anybody in any of those categories because the data is not there yet. If the NRG trials do show that, you know, there are some unfavorable intermediate risk cases where you can potentially exclude the use of ADT along with radiation, that would be great. I mean, I would that would be an awesome thing for our patients. But for now, the way I think about it is uh, I tried to 
think about treatment for higher risk disease as ways to overall, you know, maintain their quality of life. And I think one way to diminish it significantly one's quality of life is to put them on hormone therapy, hormone blocking therapy. Yeah, I appreciate that. And um, one question that always kind of seems to come up among referring providers and so forth is even staging. PSMA PET scans, when you're using that, what clinical scenarios? I generally would think about deploying it for people with, you know, high risk prostate cancer. Like we said, though, you just have to be very thoughtful about what you're doing and when you're doing it. So if you have Gleason pattern four plus four equals eight, and it's in two millimeters of one core, does that person really need a PET PSMA scan when someone else may have Gleason three plus four equals seven? 30% 30% pattern four, but have 15 millimeters of cancer, i.e. more pattern four by length than the other person. So again, you have to be thoughtful. In general, I think about it like, for sure, it's something on the table for high risk disease. And like I just mentioned, unfavorable intermediate risk disease, I'm more selective about who I think head-based imaging is a good fit for, depending on the parameters that define unfavorable intermediate. So how many cores had 437, or if it's multiple cores of three plus four equals seven, how many cores are there? What's their clinical stage? What does the MRI show? So I put the whole thing together and I don't have an exact formula, but I do have an exact formula. My exact formula is to put it all together. That's what I think. Because I think, you know, you can be really thoughtful about it. And, and many people just kind of don't go through that initial process of just going over how much pattern four by millimeters. You know, what does the MRI show? RADS5 is a bad sign long millimeters of large extent of pattern four disease, bad sign. That's where you'd want to stage somebody. And I think about it like I always explain to patients, like we want to define the extent and the location of disease. And so that's what PET is helpful for. Totally. Not to mention, you know, I think as we continue to learn about PETs, issues with specificity and sensitivity, they can be real causes for alarm when when the pretest probability is exceedingly low. 100% agree. And I think that overall, what PET is going to do for sure is radically improve the outcome for individuals with metastatic prostate cancer because of stage migration. So there's going to be a lot of people who 10 years ago, we thought had localized disease and, you know, by matter PET imaging now have advanced disease. So actually overall, by the numbers, we're going to see a reduction in deaths from prostate cancer because we have, we're going to have, well, absolute number may not change, but the percentage of men, you know, who die from their metastatic disease is going to go down because we're going to pick up earlier stuff with PET imaging. So that's my prediction. I don't know if that's true or not, but I, I get the sense that that may happen. So at least for localized prostate cancer, and I suppose we could have a conversation about metastatic prostate cancer. Maybe we'll kind of keep it confined as we, as we approach in almost an hour here. What kind of makes you excited about things coming through the pipeline as it pertains to personalized medicine, precision medicine? Yeah. Um, somebody just asked me, you know, if I was happy. So I don't know what that says about my look, but uh, our looks are very similar. <laughs> so, you know, for me, what makes me happy or gets me excited is, you know, just integrating new discoveries into the clinical treatment pathways for people with prostate cancer with the overarching theme that we are helping those people. So 
deploying new technologies that don't help but hurt people isn't necessarily exciting or doesn't make me happy. So I'm really excited to learn about the integration of some of the genomic tests into the clinical care pathways for people with prostate cancer. You know, Todd Morgan and the music group has been doing a couple prospective trials looking in the very early space. Excited to see those results. The NRG group. major, G minor. Yeah. Super excited to see that, you know, labor of love, a lot of work. I'm excited to see the results for the, you know, the GU008, 009 and 010 trials. Those will be really exciting. And those all integrate kind of genomics into the trial format. So I'm a, I'm definitely an early adopter, but I'm a thoughtful early adopter and want to just collect the data first before we kind of deploy everything all over. So um, I'm, I'm excited about those things. And I, I think that within this confines of what makes me excited or gives me a sense of happiness, I think that that would be probably the best way to summarize it. But well, let me, let me ask you a couple of specifics. Um, AI, histopath, there's a lot of interest and emphasis. I think it's even kind of creeping into the guidelines. There are some companies that have, you know, devoted significant efforts into this space. Are you excited? Are you an early investigator? Do you think it's got legs? What are your thoughts on that, Ted? I think it's always good to explore new technology and see how it fits into the treatment pathway. You know, the earliest and farthest ahead in that field is Artera AI. You know, in full disclosure, I participated in some of their scientific work and published on that. Right now, they have a very interesting data looking at the radiation space and outcomes and both as a prognostic and predictive biomarker. So that's exciting in terms of how that pans out for, you know, uh, surgical treatment for prostate cancer to be determined, how it would potentially pan out for surveillance to be determined. I think the key things in surveillance are really, who are you really studying? I don't think we need to spend any more time studying people with low volume Gleason 6 prostate cancer and how to further refine surveillance for them. We probably over-test, over-biopsy, and maybe even over-treat those people still much better than we used to, but still that's the issues. I think the idea of expanding the surveillance to broader populations of individuals is where the greatest opportunity lies in general. And so if there's an unmet need and a new technology, that's a good match on a dating app, you know? So I think it could be studied and potentially pursued. And so that's the space I think is the most interesting and exciting. And I have a partner, Ashley Ross, who's just a brilliant guy. And he's working on a couple of investigator initiated trials that really kind of pursue that concept. So, and remember, precision medicine doesn't have to be confined to transcriptomics or frankly to AI-based tools. I mean, it could be pet imaging for these individual cases. And I think there's a lot of potential opportunities for in that space as well. Why? Because I don't think we fully leveraged everything we can get out of a pet image of a prostate not necessarily for staging the disease, but actually looking at the disease within the prostate proper. So again, like there's lots of cool things. And I think it's it's silly to ask question within disease spaces where we think we well, the outcomes are already superb. That would be very low and low risk prostate cancer if you utilize the NCCN definitions, which I subscribe to. For intermediate, I think there's lots of opportunity to think about PET-based imaging to map a tumor, assess tumor volume, candidacy for surveillance, different types of treatment, 
think those things are really exciting and I'm really looking forward to kind of seeing further prospective trials in those spaces because again, my, you know, the lens I wear, I mean, the lenses I wear on my face are, you know, thick, but the, the lenses I wear really are just to define a question and then critically study the question. I'm bothered by just this widespread adoption of stuff before it's been really investigated and understood to be impactful. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I mean, it's it's exciting to think about intraoperative devices, techniques, technologies to help out with margins, but also really appreciate how you, you know, sometimes it's not just the new, it's looking at the old through this, through a different lens. PSA density, that's been around since kingdom come and family history. That's something we've known about for a long time, clinical staging. So I, I think it's, it's amazing to me how PSA density always does come up as, you know, a bonafide predictor. And I, I appreciate that. And I, I also think it, it's going to happen insidiously. I mean, over the course of your career in urology and my career in urology, there's been a fairly dramatic paradigm shift in the way people have been managed, largely based on things like histopaths, standardized reporting of histopath, and some of the other things I just mentioned. So there's two components, right? There's the new technology, and then there's the implementation and deployment of the new technology in some kind of rigorous fashion. So if every pathologist in the country reported out like the ISUP recommended in 2013, i.e. percent pattern four disease on biopsy and millimeters of pattern four on biopsy, if that was true across the world, then we would, you know, I think we'd have a lot more opportunity to be more precise. So that's like old stuff. It's just doing it consistently in all the different spaces. That's really, I think, what is an opportunity to really change what we do for people. So again, it's both. It's a mix of being open-minded about new things. And if they're new and they're interesting to you, being thoughtful about how you study them in the deployment of a particular disease space. And then there's also the kind of boring stuff, which is deployment, deploying and, and, and implementing things that we know work, but we're doing it on a kind of larger scale. And there's lots of opportunities for benefit for, for kind of the general population to do that as well. Well, thanks, Ted. Thanks for your time, for your insight, for your expertise. By all means, if there are any kind of parting thoughts to the listenership, I, I thought you actually kind of summarized things quite nicely. Would love to hear them. Otherwise, we can uh, we can call it a day. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's an awesome podcast. I really enjoy it. I would say from kind of A to maybe G, we didn't get through the whole alphabet. But I would say in terms of screening, you, know, you can be thoughtful for assessing risk. Think about genomic risk. Think about germline risk. Germline risk is rare, but potent. Genomic risk is much more common. And you can then develop a more customized strategy to screen people and potentially de-intensify screening people. In terms of presentation of localized prostate cancer, be thoughtful about the tools that should be at your hand and in your resource bin already. That is really critically doing forensics on the biopsy, telling, making sure they tell you about percent pattern four present length of cancer and what the grade of that cancer length is. Those are really important and easy things to do. Looking at the PSA density is also very easy. And then think, be, be thoughtful about who you deploy advanced testing in. Genomic testing is one example. PSMA PET testing is another one. Just be thoughtful about it and be consistent with it in your own practice so that you can kind of 
adopt and adapt to, you know, what you find and so forth. And so I, I always think about well, what am I going to do with the results of this test before I order it, right? If it's not going to change what I recommend for the patient, then don't order the test. Yeah, I love that. And I actually sit down with the output of the result before I order it. And I make sure that we're somewhat consistent on when we're going to actually do something because it's a very interesting process to say, are you willing to do something if there's a 15% chance of you dying in 15 years versus a 12% chance? So I love that. I love that. Well, well, thank you, Ted. Look forward to having you on in the future. Congrats for all the great work that you've been able to do. And you know, thanks for spending some time with us again. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kinnebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.